Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. But before we get into that discussion today, I want to sort of take a moment and step back from this whole project. Um, I am speaking, for those of you who are not listening to this in any way, like immediately after it is recorded, um, right on March 1st of 2022, and we are five days into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And this is kind of a strange situation uh, for me, certainly not in the slightest bit in any way comparable to the lives of Ukrainians who are getting absolutely destroyed or who are fighting the Russians as they advance. Um, like, I'm not going to try and even get at the experience that they're having right now being sort of caught in this war with Putin, who is just aggressively invading the country without any real provocation. Um, but I find myself kind of asking whether or not I should even be talking, in a way, about Russian culture and Russian literature and the legacy of Dostoevsky right here and now. Um, this is not Russia's best power. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, I am to some degree a student of history, or at least a student, astute enough to realize that the Russia that is under Putin's regime is hardly the Russia that Dostoevsky is writing in and among. Um, certainly Putin has a completely different agenda, a completely different background. Heck, the czars were still in power when Dostoevsky was writing. Um, he could not have foreseen communism coming, except insofar as he was concerned about the revolutions, about liberalism, about socialism. Um, you know, we've talked frequently during this lecture series about Dostoevsky's major concerns about liberalism, and it is sort of horribly tragic that ultimately liberalism is going to win the day, sort of. It's going to win only to lose again, since, you know, the Russian Revolution will in fact kick out the Tsars under the theory that, you know, this will be better because everybody will benefit, and we're going to adopt a new kind of government, but immediately exchanging that for totalitarianism seems like a pretty bad choice. Um, at least the Tsars had the peasants' best interests in mind in some respect. There was a responsibility. Everyone expected that of them, whereas Lenin and Stalin really, as much as communism professed to be a movement of the workers, the reign of terror in Stalin's Russia was not at all to the interest of the people who he claimed to serve. So I recognize that there is a distinction there, and that is certainly an apology that can be made on the behalf of like me trying to figure out whether or not I should actually be talking about Dostoevsky here and now in the midst of this gigantic war in the midst of this crisis. Um, but I also don't think Dostoevsky is exempt. Um, like, I've downplayed it because it hasn't really come up yet, and honestly, it won't come up until next week, seriously. Um, but there's always been a sort of racist and even Russian supremacist streak in Dostoevsky. Um, like I mentioned before, uh, Nabokov fairly famously said that Dostoevsky's morality was actually fairly conservative, fairly backwards, and I've never denied that. Um, you know, I've emphasized throughout this course that Dostoevsky is a Christian, that he believes in Orthodox Christianity 
in some very real and tangible ways that he writes about it directly. You know, I even argued not two weeks ago um, that the central meaning of this book is best encapsulated by a Bible verse. Um, and for that matter, I would argue that a Bible verse is at the center of virtually all of Dostoevsky's major novels, certainly Demons, certainly Crime and Punishment, certainly here in the Brothers Karamazov. The Bible and Christianity were extremely important to Dostoevsky. Um, but of course, that's considered conservative now. That's backwards. That's old traditions. Um, but Dostoevsky also politically was conservative. He stood very much against the revolutionaries and the liberals of the time, um, in part because in the 19th century, the liberals and the revolutionaries were very much the violent ones. They were the ones stirring up trouble. They were the ones inciting factory workers to violence. They were the ones overthrowing governments. Um, the many, many revolutions and revolts of the 19th century were frequently violent, frequently you know, involved a lot of loss of life, and were usually most often inspired by liberal ideas, spearheaded by professors and by, you know, like factory workers and even peasants who had sort of been caught up in these liberal ideas. Um, anarchism and nihilism was not just, you know, the discussions that were taking place in philosophy classrooms. They were real and present dangers. Um, to the people of the 19th century. It's why Dostoevsky was so concerned, so afraid of all of these students sitting around with nothing to do but, but publish tracts and publish pamphlets. Um, but what's more, it's the 19th century and everyone is a little bit nationalistic. Um, we often talk about nationalism, especially when we get to that part of our history classes that talks about World War One, as though somehow quietly over the 1860s and 70s in the wake of Otto von Bismarck, all of these countries suddenly became very, very nationalistic. Um, and we don't really appreciate what that looked like on the ground level, how, you know, over in America people are talking about manifest destiny and they're progressively cramming the Native Americans into smaller and smaller holding areas effectively, if not wiping them out altogether. Um, that same interest in sort of what is the fate, what is the, the, the ultimate, like, perfect realization of being American, or being English, or being French, or being German, or being Russian, um, that that was very much just in the air at this point in time. Like, we might point to Nietzsche and say, well, that guy was obviously really on about, you know, how awesome Germany was and how important Germany was. But no, everybody saw themselves this way. Everybody was asking these questions. What is the role of France on the European stage? What is the role of America? Are they still supposed to be isolationist? And if so, then, you know, what does America consist of? In Russia, the same questions were being asked. Um, and Dostoevsky was especially interested in those questions. Like we've seen here in the Brothers Karamazov, this sort of interest in what makes a Russian Russian. How we get that conversation where Alyosha comes to Fyodor Karamazov's house and both Ivan and Fyodor tease Smerdyakov um, for his faith in spite of himself. That Smerdyakov is like spouting nihilism, rejecting this otherwise inspiring story of a man who refused to submit and convert to um, Islamic beliefs. 
and died for his b convictions. Um, and Smerdyakov let slide that he believes that there are a couple of actual true believers with faith that can move mountains. And Fyodor teases him, says that's so typically Russian of you, that even while you are spouting liberalism, even while you are, you know, rejecting traditional ideas, even while you are shutting down Christianity, you can't let it all go. Um, there's a simplicity, an innocence, even in Smerdyakov, even at this moment, even amongst all of these intellectuals and erudite thinkers, that superstition doesn't go away. Um, and Dostoevsky believes in this. Dostoevsky believes that there is a very particular kind of person that is typically Russian. And Dostoevsky often thinks in terms of types. Um, he presents types here, and he often talks about types in literature, types of people, effectively. Um, we generally don't like to do this here in the 20th century. We don't like to stereotype, turn people into tropes, like try and boil down a person to their, to, to a sort of characteristic behavior, or a characteristic category of person. Um, but for Dostoevsky, this was his bread and butter. He saw all of Gogol's characters in Dead Souls as being classic Russian types, the, you know, penny-pinching, widowed landowner, uh, Korobachka, or, you know, even our characters here in Brothers Karamazov with Dmitry, Ivan, and Fyodor all representing different types of people that would be typically found in Russia. Likewise, he also stereotypes other people. Germans have a certain type for Dostoevsky, and the French and the English have a certain type for Dostoevsky, as well as the Poles and Ukrainians, and indeed any of the other people that Russians sort of interact with on a regular basis. Um, and the reason why I feel kind of compelled to bring this up, like why this connects specifically to the Brothers Karamazov, is that I've always been a little troubled by the discussion of types here. Um, not in this particular set of chapters, but in the next one, as Mishka goes on his spree, as Mishka is sort of, you know, roping more people into his his huge spending spree as he's getting everybody drunk in, in the village of Makroya. And, um, all of this has a character that's a little unlike what we've seen before, because we do see Mishka sort of picking up these random people along the way, travelers and foreigners who are just passing through the town. Um, even here in this section, we see Dostoevsky stereotypes uh, the Jew who Mishka sells his pocket watch to, like he pawns the pocket watch to a Jew who gives him money for it, which is much like how Raskolnikov pawns off various items to the Jew who he then kills at the beginning of the, uh, Crime and Punishment. Dostoevsky's anti-Semitism runs fairly deep. Um, he almost always associates Jewish people with money lenders, with penny pinchers, with uh, the miserly sorts of people. Um, and again, I should stress, this is very typical of the 19th century. You'll see this same sort of anti-Semitic polemic present in political speeches in Germany and France and in Russia in various sort of literary works. Uh, like Dostoevsky is hardly alone in the way that he stereotypes Jewish people. Uh, likewise, we also here see references to the gypsies here, uh, the Romani, and Dostoevsky portrays them here as though they are cheating Mishka 
that they cheated him the first time that Mishka went on a spree, and they will, in the next few chapters, try to cheat him again um, as he goes on his second spree. Again, this being the way that the gypsies were typically represented in literature like this. Um, Dostoevsky is not alone in having a certain amount of stereotype and prejudice against the Romani as well. Uh, but the one that always hit me the hardest, because it is atypical, it isn't normal, it isn't one of the things that you'll see all over the place in 19th century literature, is that in the next chat section, as Mishka goes on his spree, we're going to be introduced to two sort of throwaway characters who Dostoevsky refers to as two little Poles, um, i.e. people of Polish descent, which, you know, kind of strikes me because I am of Polish descent, Kozlowski is from the uh, village of Kozlo in Poland somewhere. Like, I don't have a deep connection to my Polish roots, but it always kind of struck me as odd the way that Dostoevsky presents the Poles here, um, specifically because they are, for all intents and purposes, throwaway comedic characters. They kind of just are small and ineffectual, and they're both kind of unnecessarily polite because they realize that by being obsequious, they can get more money out of Dmitri. So they, too, are sort of trying to cheat him, in a, in a way. Um, and what gets me about the way that Dostoevsky presents the Poles is that they are so inconsequential, and that their Polishness is a part of their inconsequentiality. Um, that specifically because they are Poles, they do not need to be paid attention to. They do not need to be sympathized with. They are just humble, servile, and therefore unimportant to the course of the story. They are literally just background characters. Um, and Dimitri makes fun of them as background characters, and uh, the narrator treats them as little more than just, you know, like laughing stocks in some sense, sort of, you know, mouse-like in how they're, they try and, you know, take the scraps that fall away as Dimitri is going on his spending spree. And maybe it's just me to, that, that gets bothered by this passage. It's, it's not to the point that I would, like, stop reading Dostoevsky outright. Um, but the same way that a lot of people kind of feel uncomfortable when they read the works of Tolkien because of the way that he presents other races in Middle-earth. Um, it's not direct. It's not obviously stereotyping some particular group of people in a particularly egregious way. But it is troubling. It, is, it reminds us of stereotypes and, and bad behavior that we have seen in other literature. And it is especially painful because Dostoevsky is otherwise so attentive to people and otherwise so humane. Like, even the Jewish people in Crime and Punishment, much as they are moneylenders, much as, you know, Raskolnikov defends himself by saying that they didn't deserve to live, Dostoevsky does make their deaths painful. Um, he emphasizes their suffering. Um, Raskolnikov, for all of his efforts to convince himself that he has not done any harm, fails. Um, it is still human life that he has taken. And Dostoevsky makes it known to the reader that this is not something that we should forget. Like, yes, it is the act of murder that destroys Raskolnikov, but he also destroyed their lives. Not just the pawnbroker who he kills, who he could theoretically justify it to himself, but also her daughter, who was an innocent, who didn't have to die. Um, Dostoevsky's interest in humanity here isn't extended to the Jew who 
uh, Dimitri Lenz's watch to. She's just there for plot purposes. It's not extended to the gypsies. They're just trying to cheat him. And it's not extended to the Poles, who are just silly and meaningless and unimportant. Um, and I want to kind of think about this. I want, on the one hand, to, you know, if we in fact went with my first sort of impulse, my first sort of conclusion, if we went with the Dostoevsky's Russia is not Putin's Russia and therefore it's okay to talk about Dostoevsky, that does oversimplify things. Dostoevsky was an important person and, and complicated character in his own right. He was a Russian supremacist in some ways, a Russian nationalist in many ways. Um, and he did think that his people were to be respected and to be sort of revered to have a kind of primary place among others. Um, and that bit about the Poles especially strikes me, because for Dostoevsky this ties into a huge, much bigger sort of question and, and awareness of Russia's place in the world. Um, in his no November 1877 edition of the writer's diary. Uh, he gets actually rather eloquent about this. This is very close to the end of Dostoevsky's life and career. Like It's only a year after this, I believe, that Dostoevsky passed away. Um, and it was, I, I believe, right after he had successfully published The Brothers Karamazov that he was working on this particular section of the writer's diary. Um, but this, ironically enough, was also going on during a war. Um, the Russo-Turkish War. The Russians were fighting the Turks. Um, and here in November 1877, the war is starting to turn around. The, the Russians have advanced into Turkey quite a bit. It's very clear that the Turks are going to be uh, are losing this war. But the Russians are advancing towards Constantinople. And as a consequence, Europe starts to get concerned. Um, they don't want Russia to break the back of the Ottoman Empire. They do not want Russia to control Constantinople. Russia has, at this point, demonstrated that it is scarier than the Europeans have given them credit. They defeated Napoleon back in 1812 and turned him back, successfully turned the tide of the Napoleonic Wars, put down the threat that was taking over all of Europe at that point, which kind of vaulted Russia onto the European stage. But now we see that Russia can also be an aggressor as needed. Yes, the Turks were engaged in some shenanigans beforehand. I don't want to go into the whole history of the Balkan crisis and everything that's going on there. I'm certainly not knowledgeable enough to talk about that. Um, but what I want to sort of look at in Dostoevsky's diary of, of November 1877 is that he very much gets on a nationalistic streak here. Um, he emphasizes that it is the Russians' fate to one day control Constantinople, and even goes so far as to argue that the sort of European compromise that is discussed, or rather this one particular Russian um, who had proposed a compromise, was not to be trusted. Um, so, for example, this is on this is, I'm reading from directly from the writer's diary here. This is the uh, Northwestern and Evanston, Illinois edition from 1994. Um, on page 1207, so this is the second volume of the diary, he mentions this particular article that he read that he's responding to. He says, Nikolai, I... I 
Ayakovlevich Danielevsky, who eight years ago wrote his excellent book, Russia and Europe, which contains just one unclear and unsound chapter dealing with the future fate of Constantinople, recently published a series of articles in the newspaper Russian World on the same subject. His final conclusion about Constantinople is very original. However, I am not going to analyze it in detail. After some excellent and very sound arguments, for instance, that after the Turks have been driven out, Constantinople can certainly not be made a free city such as Krakow once was, for instance, without the risk of it becoming a nest of every sort of abomination and intrigue, a refuge for all the conspirators of the world, the prey of yids and speculators, and so on, Danilevsky concludes that Constantinople should someday become a common city for all the nationalities of the East. All these nations, he says, will own it on an equal basis with the Russians, who will be given ownership on equal terms with the Slavs. Now, admittedly, Dostoevsky is already getting a little bit prejudicial here. Notice that he uses the derogatory term yids to refer to the Jews who could potentially possess the city with their economic clout. Um, but he goes on to talk specifically about the relationship of Russia to the Slavs. Such a conclusion is astonishing, Dostoevsky writes, in my view. What kind of comparison between the Russians and the Slavs can there be here? And who will establish equality among them? How can Russia participate in the ownership of Constantinople on an equal basis with the Slavs if Russia in every respect is unequal to them, to each little nation separately and to all of them combined? Had he felt like it, the giant Gulliver might have assured the Lilliputians that he was equal to them in all respects, but this would have been patently absurd, surely. Why assume an absurdity, and then take it to the point of compelling oneself to believe it? Constantinople must be ours, conquered by us, the Russians, from the Turks, and it must remain ours forever. It must belong to us alone, and when we possess it, of course, we can admit all the Slavs and whomever we like, and do so, moreover, on the broadest possible terms, but this will not be a federative possession of the city together with the Slavs. Just consider the fact that a whole century's work still won't be enough to set up a federal union of Slavs. Russia will possess only Constantinople and the essential territory around it, as well as the Bosphorus and the Straits. She will maintain troops, fortifications, and a fleet there, and so it should remain for a long, long time. Oh, many people will take up this notion and begin shouting, so Russia's service to the Slavic cause was evidently not so selfless after all. The reply to that is simple. Russia's service to the Slavs has still not ended and will continue for ages to come. It is only through Russia and her great centralized power that the Slavs can continue to live on Earth. A service such as this can never, ever be repaid. And if Russia does now occupy Constantinople, then it is only because within her mission and her destiny, she has another question apart from the Slavic one, the greatest and most decisive one for her. This is the Eastern question. And this question can be resolved only in Constantinople. So I want to emphasize, Dostoevsky is very much stressing here that he envisions a unity of the Russians with the Slavs, but with the Russians very clearly over and above them. Notice that emphasis that he makes, the comparison to, the, to Gulliver and the Lilliputians. Russia is not equal to the Slavs, he says. Russia is greater than the Slavs. Russia is greater than each of the Slavs, and Russia is greater than all of the Slavs put together. And this absolutely reeks of the same sort of nationalistic pride and identity that we see in Nietzsche's understanding of Germany, or in the Manifest Destiny discussions in America, or how you know England perceives itself as this empire that, on which the sun never sets. Um, there is this smacking of fate here, this idea in Dostoevsky's mind that this is Russia's destiny. 
that her greatness cannot be gainsaid, that it is her duty on the one hand, but also her role, her act, her point of pride to rule over the Slavs, to unite them under her leadership. And this, I can't help but think, is very comparable to what's going on in Russia now. This kind of mentality, this kind of thinking that Ukraine should not be an independent nation, um, this is the same sort of tyrannical language that you know, leads Hitler into Austria and Poland, and indeed leads Putin into, into Ukraine. Um, now, obviously, there is a major distinction to be had here. Dostoevsky believes in this, like, really and truly. He thinks that while Russia is going to ultimately take over Constantinople for the good of the Slavs, Putin is playing this as, as hypocritically as one can. He is maybe talking about how it is Russia's destiny to take over Ukraine, but he is interested only in the raw materials, the natural resources. Notice that Russia is not taking Constantinople from the Slavs. They're taking it from the Turks, who are engaged in a much more complicated series of battles, and it just very much seems that this is going to be the conclusion of the war that they are already in the midst of fighting. They didn't attack Turkey for the sake of conquering Constantinople. That was never the point of this war. This just happens to be a happy accident, as far as Dostoevsky and his other fellow writers are concerned. But what's more, I want to emphasize why. Why does Dostoevsky see it this way? And that's a slightly more complicated issue. Because for Dostoevsky, yes, Russia is supposed to sort of lead the Slavs in this way. And, you know, earlier in this very same issue, he's mentioned that he has, you know, that Russia's role before the Slavs is to, is supposed to be disinterested. So on page 1203, literally a few pages before the passage I read, Dostoevsky writes, in the first place, as we all know, Russia will have no thought nor should she ever have any of expanding her territory at the expense of the Slavs, of annexing them politically, of creating her own provinces out of their lands, and so on. Even now, all the Slavs suspect Russia of such ambitions, just as the whole of Europe does, and they will harbor such suspicions for another hundred years. But may God preserve Russia from such ambitions, and the more she shows her complete political disinterestedness in regard to the Slavs, the more likely her success in uniting them around her in the future, a hundred years or more from now. Rather, by providing the Slavs from the very beginning with as much political freedom as possible, and by removing herself, even from any sort of tutelage and supervision over them, declaring only that she will be prepared to draw her sword against those who encroach upon their freedom and national integrity, will Russia save herself from the terrible travails and concerns of supporting, by force, her tutelage and political influence over the Slavs, something that they, of course, find hateful, and that Europe always finds suspicious. But by having shown her absolute disinterestedness, Russia will triumph and will at last draw the Slavs to her. At first they will look to her in times of trouble, and then someday they will all cling to her with complete childish trust. They will all return to their own native nest. 
Of, oh, of course, even now many Russians hold different scholarly and even poetical views. These Russians are expecting that the new Slavic nations, liberated and resurrected into a new life, will take their first step by coming to cling to Russia as their own mother and liberator, and that they will certainly and very quickly bring many new and unprecedented elements into Russian life, that they will broaden Russia's Slavic nature in her very soul, that they will even have an influence on the Russian language, literature, and creative forces, that they will enrich Russia spiritually and show her new horizons. I confess that these notions have always seemed to me no more than academic overenthusiasm. The truth, of course, is that something of this sort will certainly take place, but it will not happen for another hundred years, say. And in the meantime, and perhaps for another century, Russia will have nothing at all to borrow from the Slavs, either from their ideas or from their literature. They have a lot of maturing to do before they can teach us anything. On the contrary, through this whole century, perhaps, Russia will have to struggle against the narrow outlook and stubbornness of the Slavs, against their bad habits, against their certain betrayal of Slavdom, which is not far off, for the sake of the European forms of social and political organization they are so eager to embrace. Again, Dostoevsky is presenting a very complicated point here, and I want to stress this. On the one hand, reading that passage starts out really nice. Oh, you're never going to invade the Slavs. How ironic that here we have Putin engaging in this aggressive annexation campaign of, of Ukraine, who is, you know, hardly a, a Slavic nation by the, the most generous imagination. But, you know, Dostoevsky was very much promising then that this was not Russia's goal, that Russia isn't interested in material gain, in having more territory. But then we immediately turn it back into, but we are superior to the Slavs. The Slavs have nothing to teach us at this point in time. An idea that is very much against what we tend to believe now. We believe that diversity is important. That every person adds to everyone else. That there is no nation so grand, so great, that it cannot be benefited by its most otherwise disregarded citizens. That all of us, from the greatest nation to the supposedly weakest, will ultimately benefit from having all of us participating in the conversation. It's a very postmodern idea, and it's a very important contemporary idea, something very much forged in the 20th century, not present in the 19th. Um, so, but we need to recognize that Dostoevsky, despite all this, has an ultimately generous objective in mind. As much as he is confused, as much as he does not realize what the the call of his own humanity is sort of telling him to do. As much as his love for people in every page of the Brothers Karamazov, and as much as his love for humanity on every one of these seems to be at odds with his prioritization of some people over others, some nations over others. Um, notice he is essentially a snob at the end of the day. As much as we have seen him have terrible compassion and pity for peasants, you'll also notice that we don't do a lot of learning from them here in Dostoevsky's work. Svidrigailov is a very compelling character. His suffering shows us a great deal about the excesses of the rich, about how Dmitri has just sort of steamrolled over him, how his son refuses to respect him. On some level, I think Dostoevsky realizes that Svidrigailov and the other characters here, um, they are important to the education of the, of the whole. And I think through his novels, Dostoevsky is effectively saying that the weaker does educate the stronger, but it doesn't come out when he's writing essays. I don't think he understands it on some conscious level. 
I think that's up to us in the 20th century to sort of realize and take away from what he has to write. But even more importantly is the final objective here. Why this is all so important to Dostoevsky, why it's significant that Russia needs to stand at the head of the Slavs, and why it is that Russia needs to conquer Constantinople, why they need to hold it as some sort of possession uh, separate from the Slavs. Dostoevsky writes on page 1210, And finally she, Russia, and she alone, is able to raise in the East the banner of a new idea, and to explain to the whole of the Eastern world its new mission. For what is the Eastern question? The Eastern question, in its essence, is the resolution of the fate of orthodoxy. The fate of orthodoxy is merged with the destiny of Russia. What do I mean by the fate of orthodoxy? Roman Catholicism long ago sold out Christ for the sake of earthly dominion, forcing humanity to turn away from it, and so being the principal cause of Europe's materialism and atheism. Quite naturally, this Catholicism also engendered socialism in Europe. For socialism's goal is to resolve the fates of humanity not through Christ, but without God and without Christ, and it had to be born in Europe in a natural process, replacing the fallen Christianity and its principles to the degree that these had been distorted and lost in the Catholic Church itself. The lost image of Christ has been preserved in all the light of its purity and orthodoxy. It is from the East that this new word will be carried to the world to counter the future socialism, and it may be that this word will again save European humanity. This is the mission of the East. This is what the Eastern question means for Russia. I know that very many will call such a view religious hysteria, but Danilevsky can well understand what I am saying. But to accomplish such a mission, Russia needs Constantinople, since it is the center of the Eastern world. Russia, with the people and the Tsar at their head, already has a tacit awareness that she is merely the bearer of the idea of Christ, that the word of orthodoxy will be transformed within her into a great deed, that this deed has already begun with the current war, but ahead of her still lie centuries of labor, self-sacrifice, propagation of the brotherhood of peoples, and ardent maternal service to them, as to dear children. Notice what his conclusion is here, what he is ultimately arguing for, why it seems so important to Dostoevsky that the Russians control Constantinople. It's not, again, for power or for gain or even for this sort of deluded idea that Russia needs to stand at the head of the Slavs. On the whole, Dostoevsky is saying that this is the last bastion of Christianity. And the union of Constantinople, the great historical center of orthodoxy, with Russia, the great preserver of orthodoxy, as far as Dostoevsky is concerned, is the only way that the truth of Christianity can finally return to Europe after the darkening caused by Roman Catholicism. Dostoevsky is a nationalist because Dostoevsky is a Christian. And this, this also troubles me to be perfectly blunt. I have heard these sorts of speeches from Americans as well, arguing that this is the last bastion of Christianity, that Republicans in America and Christians all basically have the same fundamental goal. And that's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. People have been exploiting the Christian church for political gain for 50 years and more trying to subvert Christian values into political points so Christians can be brought to the polls. All you have to do is say that you oppose abortion, and all of a sudden Christians are behind you no matter what your other ridiculous proposals and plans might be. It's troubling to me that the Christians are so easily led around by the nose in this way. 
And Dostoevsky seems to be, in many ways, a lot like those Christians, convinced that the fate of Christianity is bound up with the fate of Mother Russia. And this leads him to some really erroneous conclusions. That Constantinople belongs in Russian hands. That Constantinople should be in Russian hands and not the Slavs' hands because the Slavs cannot be trusted, because the Slavs are inferior, because... and so on and so forth. It leads him to conclude that the Poles are inconsequential, that they are just minor characters on the stage of Europe, sort of lying in the shadow of Russia. At his best, Dostoevsky envisions this as a paternal relationship. The Slavs will trust Russia to help them, and Russia will help them whenever they need it. But at worst, it is absolutely demeaning. It is a suggestion that somehow these people are weaker and smaller by virtue of their identity, perhaps even their race, to the people of Russia. Now, Dostoevsky doesn't seem to have a whole lot of those racist undertones. It's not because they are Slavs that they are inferior, but rather just because they have not been able to congregate, because they have not formed some central nation, that they are unable to stand on the European stage the way the Russians have. It is, at the end of the day, the same nationalism that informs World War I. And that's bad. Like, Dostoevsky's humanity as much as I have praised it throughout these series of discussions, is very much undercut by his own sort of self-aggrandizing attitude towards Russia. And again, this is painfully common in the 19th century. You see the same things in Nietzsche. You see the same things in writers in England and France and America. It's all over the place. And on some level, I feel compelled to forgive Dostoevsky on those grounds. But at the other hand, I can't help but just, like, shake my fist and say to myself, why couldn't you see it? Why couldn't you put all the pieces together? Why couldn't you realize that your love of peasants, your love and appreciation for the most depraved individuals in your novels equates to a love of everyone? Universal love. Not based on some kind of, you know hierarchical values according to what nation you belong to, but instead just recognizing that diversity is in fact a value. That it is important for the rich to hear from the poor and the poor to hear from the rich. For the Poles to have a speaking role in your novel instead of just being a sort of comic relief. The idea that the Jew, Jewish woman who is in fact accepting these pawns from Dmitri might very well also have a character, an identity, a value in her own right. That they aren't just this scheming race out to steal all of Russia's valuables, but rather are in fact a living, breathing component of Russian culture. That they could, if listened to, if made out to be more than pawnbrokers and loan sharks, actually have something very valuable and important to say. This is painful to me. And on the one hand, I look at Dostoevsky's writing about, even in this sort of crisis in 1877, and I contrast it with what's going on with Putin. That Putin is, you know, he is the clear aggressor where Dostoevsky preaches care and restraint. That Putin is interested in natural resources, where Dostoevsky is interested in religion and the propagation of Christianity. That Putin is a hypocrite, where Dostoevsky is sincere, even painfully sincere. But at the end of the day, it's kind of the same rhetoric for the same ends. 
that Dostoevsky is, at the end of the day, prescribing Russian supremacy over the Eastern European world. Admittedly, not the way that Putin perceives that supremacy, but supremacy nonetheless. Dostoevsky values Russia higher than he would Ukraine, which at this point they are in fact one of the same country. Um, but I should also stress that it's just not simple. That as much as I want to sit here and say, you know, Dostoevsky is a whole different animal, that Dostoevsky should be studied and should be appreciated, we really can't in this light, in these circumstances. We can't comfortably ignore the things that make Dostoevsky troublesome, problematic, as folks today seem to be inclined to call it. Dostoevsky was a product of a different time, but at the same time, those ideas, they persist. And we have to confront them. We have to face them head on. Like, Putin's argumentation, as ridiculous as it might seem to our ears today, as much as we reject the arguments that are presented, we're having this discussion in our own country now. We're asking ourselves, what is the future of America? And there are a not insignificant number of people who are taking Putin's side in this war. I've been watching as one of the campuses where I uh, teach, there's been a sort of email discussion thread going on, somebody posted something from a very pro-Russian stance towards this war, and that person has very much been sort of getting chewed out um, by all of the various people participating in the chat. Um, it's something that we're struggling with. And on the one hand, it is especially complicated by the fact that our postmodern enlightened perspective means we're looking to all sides. We believe in diversity. We believe that everybody has something valuable to say, including the person who is pro-Russia and is trying to stir up some shit. We believe that we need to weigh that argument, even if that argument is nonsensical and cannot possibly align with our perspective and our opinions. It's terribly complicated, terribly difficult to sort of take apart and make into something neat and tidy. So this is the best I can do. I'm going to keep talking about Dostoevsky on these lectures, assuming that I ever get out of this particular little tangent that I've started for myself and then been talking about for like 40 minutes. I'm going to keep going, in part because I do think that Dostoevsky is worth reading even if he is a complicated person with complicated political views that seem backwards and irresponsible to our more contemporary perspectives. In part because I think Dostoevsky was smarter than he realized, that when he in fact got on his high horse and started writing elaborate polemic about the role of Russia, he was ignoring his better impulses. He was ignoring his own Christian teaching in many cases. He was essentially ignoring the humanity that makes him so appealing to me. But also because I think Dostoevsky would, given a different time, being in a different place with the advantage of 20th century perspective, would be saying effectively the same thing. I don't think it's any huge leap to say that Dostoevsky would have been okay with Ukrainian independence from Russia in his own time. Heck, 
one of the writers that Dostoevsky revered the most, namely Nikolai Gogol, would have been, had Ukraine been an independent nation, a Ukrainian citizen. He was born in Ukraine, he was educated in Ukraine, he moved to St. Petersburg because that's what you did when you were living in Russia and trying to make a name for yourself. It could just as easily have been Kiev if things historically had been different. Ukraine has given us a great deal of important literary insight in the same way that Russia has. And I think Dostoevsky just needed to see that, to realize that the difference between the Russians and the Slavs is probably not all that significant. Certainly not some relationship of superior to inferior. Certainly not some sort of cultural awareness, some cultural superiority that is greater than the intrinsic value of a human person. I think he would have figured that out, given just a little bit of different historical perspective. But honestly, that's the kind of speculation that we do not normally get the ability to engage with. Perhaps Dostoevsky would have done that, perhaps he wouldn't. Perhaps the barriers that stand between us and a sort of truly appreciative or truly appreciative perspective of the entirety of human experience, maybe the barriers that stand between us now would be too much for him as he was. Maybe that's why we have not yet reproduced a Dostoevsky, despite the fact that so many writers are out there working tirelessly to do something like that. You can see glimpses of that humanity. I kind of think of Jonathan Franzen especially as being in Dostoevsky's vein, but it's still very difficult. There are still a lot of cultural assumptions that you kind of, that we have in place even today that prevent us from totally seeing the whole picture and instead being locked in our myopic vision, the way that Dostoevsky is in his own time. So I guess my conclusion then is, yeah, I am going to keep talking about Dostoevsky and I'm going to do it with this apology. I am not going to pretend that Dostoevsky is better than Putin in some profound underlying way. I'm not going to assume that the Russia of Dostoevsky's day is radically different from the Russia that exists today, despite all of the historical evidence to the contrary. No, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to look deeper, um, to question ourselves, and to interrogate what it is that makes people do this to each other that gives people this idea that they can go and invade another country, take over their personal space, or indeed, as Dimitri seems to hear, murder and steal by force. It's a really hard thing for us to wrap our brains around in this sort of little quasi-academic corner of the universe. But I also want to frame this in a slightly different way. I want to recognize that what we are looking at here, what I find so appealing about Dostoevsky, what I've been sort of talking about for the last eight weeks and change, isn't something Russian. It's true that it's Dostoevsky who finds this, and it's true that it is very wrapped up with Dostoevsky's idea of Russianness, and it is true that it is absolutely a Russian novel at the end of the day, but I want to emphasize that what really shines through here is human truth. Truth 
with a capital T, something that doesn't really depend on borders or nationalities or even race. It transcends that. The truth that we can find in this book has been found by English speakers and French speakers and German speakers and people in Africa and people in South America and people in Asia, just as it has been in Russia. It is our truth. And it's always dangerous to make these sorts of assertions that we can understand this in a way that is more appropriate than the people who had it in its own day. It is always dangerous to do the sort of speculation where you're saying, you know, Dostoevsky didn't understand his own ideas. It's terribly dangerous. But even if he didn't, even if he was oblivious, even if he was just at the end of the day a bad person, I think we have the right, and perhaps even the obligation, to take away from him, to make it more than him. Essentially, I'm saying that we need to appropriate this book, which is an especially dangerous thing to say. We all know that cultural appropriation is bad news, and it frequently is. But there is a huge difference, I think, between the cultural appropriation by which a person takes something that was said out of its original context and thus twists it, torments it, tortures it into a shape that it doesn't belong in. And then I think there is something very different about taking a cultural artifact away from someone who is doing exactly that kind of misuse, who is, in fact, torturing and tormenting and twisting it into a shape that it doesn't belong in all by themselves. I think at the end of the day, Putin and the Russian engines of militarism that are currently insisting on Russian nationalism, on Russian national identity, on Russian cultural power and significance, I think it is well within our rights to take Dostoevsky away from them. I think they've been misusing Dostoevsky for, honestly, generations at this point. You know, under the Soviets, Dostoevsky was not allowed to be a Christian, and he, his work was very much censored to sort of bring him more in line with the atheistic program of the Soviets. It's a fairly well-documented practice. Like, uh, my friend Wes and I have been talking a lot about this writer Bakhtin, who I have unfortunately yet to read, and whether Bakhtin is sort of intentionally avoiding the Christian elements in Dostoevsky in order to, you know, be able to publish without the notice of the censors, or whether Bakhtin really doesn't appreciate the Christianity in Dostoevsky because, or perhaps in spite of the fact that the censors have been rooting it out. For whatever reason, Dostoevsky is this extraordinarily contentious figure. He is so toweringly important to Russian identity, and yet only in a certain form, only for a particular reason, only in certain ways. And they'll censor the rest. They'll make sure that he fits who their ideal actually is. And I refuse to do that. Dostoevsky was a complicated dude. He had a lot of convictions that I have very strong reservations about, if not flat-out disagreement, if not flat-out contempt for those ideas. But I will, at least here, and in my own studies, study the whole man, at least as much of him as I can get my hands on. I will not whitewash him. And I intend 
to appropriate him, to make him not Russian anymore. If what Russia means today is belligerence and invasions and a pointless seeking after profit, if they have lost so much of what defines Dostoevsky's view on humanity, what Dostoevsky's view on the importance of Christianity, and Dostoevsky's view on, for that matter, not being an aggressive dick about your relationship with other nations, then they certainly can't claim to parade him as one of their own. In the same way that we as a nation could hardly claim to be following Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream if we have rejected the prospect that racism is an issue in this country. Cultural appropriation cuts both ways in that sense. And I think Dostoevsky wouldn't stand for what Russia is doing today. Nor should we let them carry him away with them. He's ours now. And we should treat him as such. So, at least in this little lecture series, yeah, we're going to continue reading some Russian literature. We're still going to study Dostoevsky, one of the greatest Russian writers who ever lived. And we're going to, in many ways, make him not Russian anymore. And that is kind of a shitty thing to do in many circumstances. Like, that doesn't mean we're not going to talk about Russia, for sure. We're definitely going to talk about the culture and the context and the time period, and what it means to be Russian in Dostoevsky's eyes. All those things are definitely going to keep coming up, and they're definitely going to be talked about here, for sure. But let's recognize that what is going on now, what Russia has decided to do with its power and its authority and its wealth and even its people, is terribly out of sync with what Dostoevsky would want. That Dostoevsky was a complicated, messed up dude. That, and many of the things that Russia does want today, Dostoevsky has parallels in his own writing. But at the end of the day, they're night and day. They're totally different. They are apples and oranges. They are entirely incomparable. And if Russia insists on being the Russia it is today, then they lose a great deal of what Dostoevsky was so proud of when he wrote about Russia, what he was so excited about, why he believed they had this prominent position, why they deserved this position of significance and power. They have foregone their Russianness, I think and have therefore foregone Dostoevsky as one of their forebears. So, that is a long-winded way of basically coming to the conclusion that I suspect that we all knew was coming in the first place, and I'm going to keep giving lectures about Dostoevsky. Um, but I don't want to, to just blow over this. Like, I don't want this to, to go without saying. I, I considered other alternatives. I considered about, you know, just going out of my way and, you know, like lecturing about Gogol without any explanation this week and talking about his role in Ukrainian literature and especially his interest in Ukrainian folk tales. Like, he's got a lot... He was doing very much the same sort of thing that Brothers Grimm was doing back in the 19th century, where he was, like, going back to his hometown and recording a lot of the old fairy tales or the equivalent to fairy tales that he was hearing and then recording 
recording them and for broader Russian consumption, you know, the way that many romantics were doing that. I was tempted to just kind of do that, just like switch to Google without any explanation and see if anybody noticed and sort of chalk that up to a support for Ukrainians over Russians. But at the end of the day, I think, again, that this ultimately shouldn't cause us to change the trajectory of this discussion at the very least, that it would be very sad for us to lose Dostoevsky and lose his writing in the process of protesting against Russia. Um, I don't have a problem with Russia, at least not as Dostoevsky and his culture is concerned. What I have a problem with is Russian aggression, a very contemporary phenomenon, very much spearheaded by the personality of one man, Putin, who, you know, is just a jerk, and that's kind of all there is to it. So I don't mind taking Dostoevsky away from him and not getting terribly, you know, upset about it. From what I understand, even Putin's own people have a great deal of frustration with him, especially at this point in time. If I am hearing correctly the rumors of various military leaders who are, you know, turning their troops around and having them drop their weapons rather than kill Ukrainians who are just minding their own business. Uh, it is a complicated thing, and it is a really shitty thing that there is a war at all at this point in time. Uh, and we are not wrong to blame Russia for this. That's not, you know, at all incorrect. They've you know, they've warranted this because of their actions. You can't sort of gainsay that or, or double-talk your way around it. Um, but, you know, Dostoevsky is not one of the ones carrying weapons right now. Dostoevsky's works are not the ideological foundation for this Russian regime and this justification. So I don't have a problem with going on with him. And I hope you don't either, though I would totally understand if you do. Um, if you do want to talk about this, by all means, email me. As always, you can email me at Professor Kozlowski. Um, I think it's... Oh, my gosh. I now forget my email. Ah! Um, I have it. It's here. Uh, ProfBKozlowski2 at gmail.com if you want to discuss this. I'd honestly like to know more about it. I'm not terribly knowledgeable about what's going on. I definitely don't know my fair share of Ukrainian history and all this discussion. Um, I've talked about it, I know a little bit, but generally speaking, like, my expertise is elsewhere. So if you do want to, like, set me straight on this, if you if you do, in fact, disagree with my take, I, I would honestly want to hear it and, and why. And I would absolutely, you know, print a retraction or whatever the equivalent is when you're doing podcasts. Um, but yeah, I think this is this is where I'm sitting for now. This is what I'm thinking for now. Subject, of course, to change as time goes on and more information becomes accessible. Um, but again, for now, we're going to actually do some more Dostoevsky. Um, so let's actually look at this section, which admittedly there isn't a whole lot to analyze here. Like, at long last, we finally get to see Mitya on his own terms. Like, that's what this whole chapter is about, that's what this whole section is doing, that's what this whole book is for. Um, and we see him very much, and we, we also get to see why he's been missing for so long. We get this fairly elaborate story about how first he visited Samsonov, and then Samsonov sent him on this wild goose chase to meet the, the forester, the Agavi, who is like the same guy that Fyodor has the arrangement with about the forest. And then 
Fyodor finally comes back just in time to like catch uh, catch Grushenko before she goes off to Kuzma Kuzmich Samsonov's um, in order to like keep the books. Only that's a, also a feint, which we already know at this point. And then he's apparently getting in that conversation with Madame Koklikov. Like he's bouncing around, and it's very clear why. Alyosha hasn't been able to find him. Like, Alyosha has been going out of his way to look for Dimitri, but Dimitri is unable to be kept down. And there's something really surprising and self-destructive about this behavior. Um, notice that Dimitri himself in this section notices, you know, he hasn't been keeping his vigil. He has not been able to watch and make sure that Grushenka doesn't go to Fyodor's, which is the thing that he's the most terrified about. Dmitri is caught between his sort of short-term goal of making sure that Grushenka and Fyodor don't ever get together, and his long-term goal of actually winning Grushenka over in the first place. So he can't be in both places at once. He can't simultaneously catch Grushenka before she meets Fyodor, while also making sure that his financial circumstances are well enough that he can, like, actually take care of this Katerina Ivanovna problem and also, like, free himself so he can presumably run off with Grushenka. And notice that the way that he's thinking here, the way that he's sort of presenting his ideas here are equally nonsensical. Like, every time he opens his mouth, it's all just nonsense. And we get that long explanation that he makes to Samsonov that's all just, like fragmented and broken. This is on page 370 and 371. Um, the most honorable Kuzma Kuzmich has doubtless already heard more than once of my disputes with my father, Fyodor Pavlovich Karamazov, who robbed me of my inheritance after my own mother, because the whole town is chattering about it, because here everyone chatters about things they shouldn't, and besides, it might also have come to you from Grushenka, I beg your pardon, from Agrafina Alexandrovna, from Agrafina Alexandrovna, who is so greatly respected, so greatly honored by me, and on and on and on in these broken ways, even when the narrator's sort of tries to like tie it all together you know he broke off at the first sentence we will not quote his whole speech but the narrator himself is forced to sort of break into this same sort of cadence that you know he qualifies he precisely said purposefully not purposely and then we get you know a vast brain almost the mind of a statesman he knows you too he has the highest opinion and the narrator is caught up in this and this is characteristic of who Dmitri is. Like, we saw this a little bit when Dmitri was bearing his soul to Alyosha. But even then, he was considerably more controlled, kept. Like, he was still emotional, still passionate. Here, he's on his last nerve. These are his last chances that he's walking through. He is so desperate to get this 3,000 rubles and get himself out from under the debt of Katerina Ivanovna that he feels like he is on his last legs. And this is important for us to notice, that he goes to some very desperate lengths to do this. He has no connection with Samsonov. He has no hope that Samsonov is actually going to give him the money that he's looking for. And if he goes to Samsonov anyway, and Samsonov, as we're told, is just laughing at him the whole time. He specifically sends him to Leah Gavi, not the, the proper name of Leah Gavi, instead giving him the nickname that everyone has set up till this point, that Leah Gavi would be offended at hearing. Yes, he's Leah Gavi, we're told, but you better not tell him that or he'll be very offended. Um, and it's very obvious to us and to the narrator that Mishka is being taken advantage of, but Samsonov has no intention of helping him whatsoever. Um, and what's more, when we actually see Dimitri turn his attention to what the narrator seems to think is a more a more suitable approach towards getting the money, i.e. borrowing it from Madame Koklikov, notice that that is equally absurd and ridiculous. Madame Koklikov can't, like, 
break out of her feather-headed muddle long enough for Dimitri to actually get in his intentions, to express how desperate he actually is. Like, Madame Koklikov is presented as absurd throughout the novel. She has been from the very beginning. Um, but here she is at her worst when she is talking endlessly about, you know, you should go into gold mines. You have the sort of stride to make sure that you would be able to find these things. And, like, there's no good reason for this. This is absolutely ridiculous. What's more, we've been told by the narrator that Dimitri is the sort of man who doesn't understand money, doesn't realize what it means to work for it. It goes through his hands like water. When, in fact, he actually has the 1,500 rubles in his hand, or however much that he's carrying after the mysterious events at Fyodor Karamazov's, um, Pavel even mentions, you know, you, you're just lying at places. Like, it's trash. Um... Piotr Illich mentions this a couple of times, like he's just holding it as though he doesn't understand what's in, even in his hand. Wherever he got the money from, wherever he got the 3,000 rubles or the 2,000 rubles or whatever it is that he's carrying, he doesn't seem to value it. As much as he's been desperately searching for the 3,000 rubles to solve all of his problems, Piotr Illich notices that as soon as he has money, he doesn't care about it. He doesn't know what to do with it. It's trash to him. Um, there is a desperation, but also an, an almost insanity in the way that Dimitri is behaving here. Because he really is at his last hope, his last nerve. We have talked to all three of these people, first Samsonov and then his mad wild goose chase, renting the horses and riding all the way to the peasant village and following the priest over a mile and a half, to Leah Gavi's where it turns out that he's just flat in his bed drunk and Dimitri can't even beat him into wakefulness, and then by the time that Dimitri is actually awake and Leah Gavi is supposedly recovered, he's already drunk and the cycle has already begun all over again. And Dimitri just goes through all of this, getting progressively more and more hysterical, more and more out of control, until finally we get this really decisive moment in our fourth chapter here, in the dark, when Dimitri is building himself up to this anger, when he checks to see if Grushenka has already gone to Fyodor's, because at this point she's run off with her soldier, the missing soldier of five years ago, as we know from what Alyosha's, uh, what we saw from Alyosha's chapter, and Dmitri assumes that her disappearance means that she's gone to Fyodor's, so he camps out there, and he goes under his window, and at last, when he can't determine whether Grushenka is there or not, he raps the way that Smerdyakov has told him, getting Fyodor to come to the window, getting Fyodor to poke his head out of the window and look around, and at that moment of rage fills Dimitri, and he raises the bronze pestle that he's stolen, and then we're given this mysterious omission. The personal loathing was increasing unbearably. Mitya was beside himself, and suddenly he snatched the brass pestle from his pocket, and then nothing. And I want to sort of look at this. Again, it's not the sort of thing I've usually been talking about here, because for the most part, I've honestly been ignoring what might so-called be the plot of this story. Like, I definitely downplayed Dimitri and his feud with his father in our first couple of discussions, and then obviously we've been all over the place watching Alyosha and Ivan and um, all of the very, or Snegorov, the, the peasant captain, and like we've been very caught up in the themes and the ideas and the philosophy and the characters and the dialogue. 
But here we actually do have the plot, like coming back to visit us. Dimitri has threatened on multiple occasions to murder his father. Here we are in the perfect occasion. Everything has been set up. We've even been told by Smerdyakov and by the narrator that like Smerdyakov is out and Grigory is is down with his supposed illness and Alyosha's, you know, mourning the loss of the elder and he's out of the way for several days and Grushenka is out of the way. Like, this is it. This is the moment. This is the parasite. And we even get, when Grigory Vasilievich gets up, he immediately calls out to him, Parasite, the old man shouted for all the neighborhood, neighborhood to hear. It's assumed that in this missing chunk of text, the patricide has happened. Dmitri has in fact killed his father Fyodor, just as we've been building up to all of this time. But we know Dmitri, and we know that he's compulsive. He doesn't act rationally. In that time, could just as easily have been nothing. Him putting down the pestle and walking away. I mean, we know we, he has the pestle because he hits Grigory with it, which really sucks. Like, poor Grigory Vasilievich gets beaten up for no good reason, even though Grigory Vasilievich raised Dimitri, as he would no doubt be the first to tell us. Um, the whole thing is very, very strange. Especially for Dostoevsky. Like, Dostoevsky does not typically hide plot information. This is not his game. Like, this is absolutely the sort of shenanigans you would expect from, you know, a contemporary 20th century writer doing movie writing or something, like some hack who is trying to hide the great event and, and misdirect the audience. It's like, you know, you, you hear that Superman was killed off stage, but it looks, it turns out that he's actually, like, yeah, fine, cool, whatever. And I'm honestly a little frustrated with Dostoevsky here. Like, I know that I got very grumpy with him in the first chapter because of just bombarding us with information, but I've since, after that lecture, very much come to appreciate exactly what kind of crazy shenanigans Dostoevsky is able to pull off with the, the sheer audacity of that chapter. Here, on the other hand, I'm not sure if I can be quite so generous. Multiple times over the course of these four chapters, our narrator deliberately breaks in to the action and tells us, that something has happened that is especially important or will be especially important later, but for now you've just got to go with it. Like the narrator tells us when he goes and pawns his watch, that it is especially important and everyone is going to remember that he had no money at this particular moment in time, and this will be important later. Likewise, when he goes to pawn his pistols, same thing. We're, we're interrupted by the narrator, and the narrator tells us, this, he's obviously still broke at this particular time. And then Pyotr Ilyich sees him again when he comes back for the pistols, and we're remarked that he has all this money, that he's covered in blood, that there's all this evidence that Dmitri is, has killed someone. Even to the point that Pyotr remarks that, like, oh, you're not wounded, this is somebody else's blood, and even says to himself that apparently he got into a fight. Like, even at the very end of that chapter, in the, at the end of the sudden decision, Pyotr is now banging on the door of Grushenka's house, trying to wake up everybody, presumably because he's finally put two and two together and realized, oh my god, he probably just killed his father. But the moment that we would be looking for to confirm this isn't here. We, the readers, aren't let in on whether or not Dmitri actually killed his father or not. 
Everybody assumes he did. The evidence against him is positively staggering, as we will see once people actually start doing some investigation. Spoiler alert, that's what the setup is all for. After the next section, we're going to get a pretty elaborate set of chapters about the formal investigation into what the hell Dimitri has been up to for the last, like, 12 hours, and whether or not he actually killed his father. All of this is going to be extremely relevant, but Dostoevsky has terribly unsubtle about it here. Um, he just drops all this information on us with all of these ominous, portentous hints, and we're just supposed to kind of swallow it and move on. And I'm honestly really frustrated by it. Like, Dostoevsky shines so much when we know everything that is going on, when there isn't any hidden information for us. When Raskolnikov is running down the Russian streets with barely a penny in his pocket and, you know, he's murdered the pawnbroker and he's has just gotten, like, 20 rubles because of this horrible thing that has been transpiring between him and his family. And then he gives that money to the poor family whose husband just, like, drunk himself into a stupor. That means something really powerful to us. We realize how hard it is for Raskolnikov to come by that money, how he's taken this very drastic step in order to get that money, and as a consequence, his throwing it away just strikes us as being potently generous, almost unthinkably generous, ridiculously generous. How could this person care this much about money and then throw it away so easily for a sh for a noble cause. It's very striking to us. Likewise, in Demons, we're convinced, we're told the entire plan that Pyotr Stepanovich has before he executes it. If only because once that plan starts to break down, once Pyotr Stepanovich's comrades and most trusted you know, compatriots start betraying him or falling apart or failing to live up to their standards, we see Pyotr Stepanovich turning meaner and meaner and meaner as these chapters proceed. But here, here we get suspense. We get a sort of dramatic dodge in order to keep us from knowing what exactly has happened. And on some level, as a writer, I'm kind of just offended by this. Like, even as a reader, I'm a bit offended by this. Like, I, I, I trust Dostoevsky. He is a, one of the great writers, that one of the greatest writers who have ever lived. I've read so many of his other novels. And, you know, even the first time that I read The Brothers Karamazov, I remember when I was in college, I had specifically foregone reading The Brothers Karamazov, despite the fact that I knew its reputation and how important it was supposed to be, because I specifically wanted to read his other stuff first, that I knew that this was, like, the big one to build up to. So I read Demons, and I read the the uh, Crime and Punishment. I read The Adolescent. I read The Idiot. And then finally my senior year, I actually sat down to read The Brothers Karamazov, and there was a lot to love about it, but it is a kind of ugly, problematic book as far as its writing and structure is concerned. It's stuff like this. Shenanigans where Dostoevsky just builds up to this really climactic moment and it doesn't bother to share it with us. Like, he knows what he's doing. We know what he's doing. It's very transparent and kind of artless as a consequence. So the question that I find myself asking is, is it excusable? Does it work? Is it annoying but to a purpose? And on some level, I 
guess that it's true. Keeping the reader in abeyance is important for all the dramatic stuff that's going to come down the pike. All of the investigation as it plays out is going to mean more to us because we don't know whether Dimitri has or has not, in fact, killed Fyodor. We dread the possibility that Fyodor is dead at Dimitri's hand. We dread that something terrible has happened, but we don't have any evidence. We don't have any concrete, narrated discussion of what has in fact happened. If anything, I think the true art here is the fact that we don't know. The fact that Dostoevsky can pull this off, can bring us to the point that Dimitri is under the window with the pestle in his hand, that it could very well be the moment that he murders his father, and we honestly can't say. If we do get these obnoxious series of dots over the course of the page, rather than an actual description of what happens, we are left there thinking, well, what happened? We can believe that Dimitri killed his father. We've seen him violent before. We are specifically told here that the same rage overcomes Dimitri that overcame him the last time that he beat his father. Like, his father is literally wearing the handkerchief and, like, tending to the wounds of being beaten up by Dimitri just a day or two before. So we know that he's capable. But we also know that he's capable of changing his mind at the drop of a hat, forgetting entirely his obligations, and running off and doing something completely random. All of this within only five or six chapters of characterization about Dimitri. Like, he is on the one hand, very well known to us, so well known, in fact, that we know that he can do either one of these acts, but at the same time, he is also an unknown to us. We don't know for sure whether this moment would lead to murder or not. Dimitri could be innocent. Dimitri could be guilty. And we honestly don't know. We guess, probably, from the very structure here, and in fact, that's kind of the danger of, of pulling this sort of shenanigan, we guess that he's not guilty. Because if he was guilty, they would just tell us, right? Like, Dostoevsky isn't going to hide the actual murder if murder, in fact, occurred, right? Or is it? It's really hard to say. So, again, I'm not sure if it works. Like, obviously, you know, your mileage may vary on this one. Perhaps you're not having these problems at all. Perhaps you even get a sort of kick out of Dostoevsky, you know, pulling this very modern trick here in a book that generally would not pull such sort of, you know, sneaky, dramatic tricks. Uh, I don't know. Suffice it to me to say that I always find this a little bit frustrating, especially because it is immediately followed by Dmitri almost murdering Grigory. And this is just passed over. Like, nobody talks about this. Um, Grigory is, to me, such a sympathetic character. Like, he is kind of absurd and ridiculous, and Dostoevsky, you know, does show us quite a bit to make him kind of absurd and ridiculous in his way. Um, but the fact that, like, Dimitri leaves him for dead, and we're, we're kind of just supposed to move on, is kind of a bummer. Poor, poor Grigory. Um, I always feel like Grigory gets the shaft in this novel quite a bit. Um, but at the very least, you know, mild spoiler, he does survive, so at least, you know, at least there's no murder investigation into Grigory. That, that seems to check out as far as plot reasons are concerned. Um, but the other thing I kind of want to stress here is, is what exactly Dostoevsky likes to write about. Um, 
on the one hand, I'm talking about cheap dramatic tricks and, and shenanigans and, and whether or not this is warranted, whether or not this actually works and all that. But I also kind of want to stress that Dostoevsky likes to write about crime. And this is such a weird thing to sort of wrap brains around. And again, because this is not what usually shows up in discussions of, quote, literature. Like, I've often, you know, even in this lecture series, compared Dostoevsky's method to law and order, like, ripped from the headlines. And, and again, there have been a lot of moments in this story where Dostoevsky has referenced current events in Russian literature or current events in Russian news or political ongoing political situations or economic situations. Like even in this section we get multiple references to various Russian periodicals that help us to, to sort of understand the characters. Like Madame Koklikov at one point quotes a very fashionable liberal Russian periodical which Dostoevsky is attempting to make fun of because Madame Koklikov, i.e., you know, the kind of foolish, ridiculous, uh, fripperous Madame Koklikov is reading, you know, this particular writer and not, you know, the revolutionaries and anarchists that he would kind of hope for. Um, so Dostoevsky is very attentive to that and very much sort of writing about this stuff, but it's also worthwhile to notice we generally don't consider crime literature to be of great literary merit anymore. Like, Law and Order is kind of the butt of the, you know, joke that American television is just pablum and nonsense. Like, it was on the air for so long and is often sort of credited with being so banal that anyone can watch it, that anyone sort of observes it. The plots are so transparent and so predictable that, you know, the, the plot beats are so consistent. And I've always kind of chafed at that. Like, I've actually seen quite a few Law & Order episodes that I thought really moving and, and, and uh, like, powerful and, and instructive and Generally, I don't have a very low opinion of even, like, network television. Uh, there's quite a bit on network TV that I watch and think is very artistically sound, whether it's, you know, House or the first couple of seasons of Lost or the first series of Heroes or any number of things like that. There's a lot of good stuff on TV and not just, you know, HBO, Cinemax, Stars, premium television experiences. Um, but especially in like the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, TV was very much the butt of that sort of thinking. And it is this kind of writing that Dostoevsky very much originated in many ways. Uh, the 19th century saw the growth of a lot of different popular mass media property and method in a, in a way. Like, Dostoevsky is writing in the same 50-year span that brings us Poe's stories of murder and mystery, the... Auguste Dupin, the first ever, like, serialized detective story, as well as the sort of perfect encapsulation of this in Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. Um, this is the same era that gives us the Count of Monte Cristo's adventure stories, and it's not going to be long after Dostoevsky that we're going to get, like, Robert Louis Stevenson doing Treasure Island and Kidnapped and all of these exciting stories of the high seas or the stories of Baroness Orsi, the, the Scarlet Pimpernel and all of his various adventures. Um, like, this is a moment when the novel as a form is transforming, becoming something more than just a stuffy artistic device. 
which, you know, is actually a return to form because back in the 18th century when, you know, Robinson Crusoe was first published and that's largely considered the first ever, ever proper novel, it was meant as popular entertainment, something that was an alternative to going to the opera or going to the plays because it was cheap, could be printed on paper, that, and, and at this point everybody in London could read, so by all means it could be a popular form of entertainment. Um, Dostoevsky always walks on that line. And I always find that so fascinating about him. The Dostoevsky isn't aware of the same sort of artistic conventions that we have in the 20th century. That he's not interested in the barrier, the difference between pop art and high art. That his literature is neither the sort of obvious, you know, popular material that we see of the likes of Sherlock Holmes or the Scarlet Pimpernel or Treasure Island. But at the same time, it's because that hard, fast distinction just doesn't exist in his day. Like, I think especially of, of uh, Alexandre Dumas, um, the Count of Monte Cristo and the Three Musketeers. The French had such a hard time trying to figure out what to do with Alexandre Dumas. Like, he's this incredibly important writer, very popular. The Count of Monte Cristo, everybody read this when it was being serialized in France. Like, everybody loved this story. Um, but it's really significant that they refused to bury him in the famous writer's graveyard in the Académie Française. Um, like, he was not high art. He was beneath the great artists. He was no Victor Hugo and no, you know, great thinker like Rabelais or, or uh, any of the other great right, uh, French writers of the 19th or 18th centuries. He didn't deserve his place because he just wrote cheap action stories. Um, and Dostoevsky writes cheap action stories that are also freighted with literary worth and psychological insight and deep, meaningful, philosophical asides about grand inquisitors and, you know, anarchism and all sorts of things. Dostoevsky didn't care. Dostoevsky didn't have those rules to play by because Russia's literary scene wasn't nearly as snobbish as England's had become or France's had become. There wasn't that hard, fast distinction between what Dumas was writing about and what Hugo was writing about, what um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was writing in his Sherlock's home stories and what Thackeray or, or um, Trollope was writing in his supposedly very important literature about, you know, parliament and, and psychology and British, British society. And honestly, I like Doyle a lot better than I like a lot of those, you know, parliamentary stories and supposedly important literature. And I think most people do. I think Sherlock Holmes has an immortality about it that the Palliser novels never achieved, and that's just fine. Which I want to stress. Like, I want to stress that our artistic conventions are purely cultural. That you can, in fact, write really good stories about murder and mayhem and about mysteries. And that even if Dostoevsky is pulling a trick that we perceive as cheap here in this particular passage, then it wasn't cheap. Then it was fairly new. Then it was an experiment. Then Dostoevsky was just doing something that he thought was artistically justified. Something that he thought was right. 
maybe it's just my own assumptions, my own sort of snobbery that causes me to think less of him as a consequence. At the very least, I should also mention that some of the great marginalized forms of literature were started at this point in time. This is when our first fantasy stories were released in the forms of original fairy tales. This is when Jules Verne and H.G. Wells are beginning to write the first science fiction stories outside of, like, Frankenstein and uh, Dracula and stuff. It's a moment of great change, of great upheaval in the literary world, and there is a lot of room for experimentation. Many of those experiments will yield abundant fruit, whole genres, you know, without Frankenstein and Jules Verne, without George MacDonald and Andrew Lang, we don't get Tolkien, and we don't get Frank Herbert, and we don't get, by any extent of the imagination, the sort of crazy stuff that we're seeing from comic books or graphic novels or even some of the wild flights of fancy that we see today. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff, literary and non-literary, that comes from these sorts of experimental traditions. And the snobbery and the lack of snobbery of the 19th century, that sort of wild west of the literary world, is the foundation of so much of this. Dostoevsky didn't have pretensions. He wrote what he wanted to write. Sometimes it was silly and, and sort of cheap and popular, and sometimes it was deep and meaningful and true. And they can coexist. It can be piecemeal. It can be one chapter is ridiculous and another chapter is profound. It can be one chapter is exciting and dramatic and suspenseful, while another chapter is a deep and meaningful insight. We get to see Dimitri, the crazed person, gradually being tipped toward murder, just like any Quentin Tarantino movie or like any Law & Order plot. But at the same time, Dimitri is presented to us as a real character, somebody sympathetic, somebody meaningful, somebody who we can care about, somebody who we might be if, in fact, things had gone a little bit differently. And I just find that striking. I kind of want to just point at that for a moment. But lastly, we just need to talk about the big decision, this strange decision. Suddenly, Dimitri has money. And we don't know where it came from. Maybe he murdered his father and took the mysterious 3,000 rubles that were in the packet that he was saving for Lushenka. Maybe he acquired it from some other way. We certainly know that it wasn't from Madame Koplikov, despite what Pyotr seems to be spreading around, um, and despite Dmitri's own lie to Pyotr. But also, we see what he does with this money. Like, we see him lose all hope here. That's why he goes to his father's mansion. Once Grushenka has run away, he is convinced that she has left him for Fyodor, and so he goes off and potentially murders Fyodor. When he comes back to Grushenka's and realizes that she's gone off with her fiancé, he has a different plan in mind. And notice the first thing he does is he gets his pistols back. And the first thing we should be thinking there is he's suicidal. He's given up. Like, wherever he got this money from, apparently he's not going to pay Katrina Ivanovna back with it because he doesn't care anymore. He doesn't have any reason to. There's no Grushenka to try and please, and he's definitely not going to marry her, so he's doomed before her anyway, and therefore, what is he doing with this money? Well, all of a sudden, he's spending it on everything. He's going to go on a spree. He's buying champagne and food, and he's apparently going back to the village where he and Grushenka spent time before, the same village where it seems that Grushenka has gone to meet 
her missing five-year-old soldier person. So it's clear that Mitya is kind of not sure what his plan is at this point. Maybe he's going to try and seduce Grushenka back. Maybe he's going with the intention of just going on a spree and then killing himself at the end of the evening. We don't know. What we do know is that he's still volatile. We do know that he is still dangerous. We don't know what he's going to do to himself, but we know that he's gone past the point of no return at this point. He has, in fact, shed blood. Whether it includes his father's or not, it kind of doesn't even matter to Dimitri at this point. At this point, he's lost. Grushenka is gone. He's either going to win her back, hopelessly, knowing full well that there's no good reason why she would join him, because, you know, he is going to throw money at her, apparently, but again, by trying to reproduce that one hour that Grushenka actually loved him, the one hour that both Grushenka and Dmitri have referred to at this point, and probably the very same one hour that was the one referred to as this, the onion, that one moment that Grushenka became a person, that she actually cared for another human being. She loved Dmitri, but only for an hour. And perhaps that hour was enough to save her. Dimitri is careening out of control at this point. And this is, again, Dostoevsky emphasizes a sort of type. This is a person, or at least a characteristic Russian, who has lost control of their faculties, who doesn't have any self-control, who are completely passionate, totally representative of that great romantic hero, or the great romantic heroes of the early 19th century, these people who were consumed by their emotions and by their passions, the way that Dimitri is here, who don't speak rationally, but rather are just driven by whatever demons possess them. In this case, this want for honor, this need for money, and this hope for love. So next time we will see the actual spree. We will be able to follow Dimitri as he wines and dines and tries to, you know, experience this last bit of pleasure before he kills himself, question mark, or before he seduces Grushenka, question mark, or whatever is in fact bound to happen. We get to watch that transpire next week. So until then, I hope that you enjoy reading. Uh, by all means, Let's keep up with this whole Ukraine-Russian war business and hope for the best here. For any of you listening from either side of that particular debate, I hope you are safe and I hope that you make wise choices and I hope that you come to some sort of diplomatic solution here as quickly as you possibly can. Um, in the meantime, keep reading and we will talk about the next passage. We will talk about Dimitri's spree next week. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. 
And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.